You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech, where we dream of a day when the podcasting and music industries unite so that we can intersperse music on this podcast without the licensing headache that exists today, where the ad revenue or hardware or e-commerce revenue or subscription fees that all these podcast platforms generate can pay for the music we wish you were hearing in our next segue, or where we could pay a suitable fee to just license directly and where we dream that podcast music licensing would be another great source of revenue for songwriters and composers, publishers, and record labels. I am your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a music tech PR firm, and I'm the founder of the Music Tectonics Conference, which takes place in October in Los Angeles. Today, I'm excited to have with me Zach Zallen, the CEO and co-founder of Super Hi-Fi, based in LA. How you doing, Zach? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. So glad to have you on here. We met at the Music Tectonics Conference. We're working together on some stuff. And I thought, let's just, let's have you on. Let's talk this out. <laughs> I'm, I'm really psyched. Yeah, we're going to get into some cool top-level issues of the industry of podcasts, streaming, radio, and so forth. And we will get to exactly what Super Hi-Fi does. But for now, suffice it to say that your company lives in the space between songs in streaming services. You have a system that uses AI to help streaming services create the perfect segues from song to song or from song to audio content like news or ads and back to songs again. And we'll get deeper into your story uh, down the road in this conversation. But let's start at the 10,000 foot level. I brought you on the show to talk about what's going on in audio listening in 2020. To me, it feels like something different is happening with the state of listening. We went from a moment where all broadcast was audio only. I'm thinking about the, the heyday of the early radio era. And then came the introduction of television and then its rise, uh, which we could talk about. Alongside that, the growth of cars, commuting, travel by car, the Ford era, making uh, kind of radio have this special place in popular culture, cars and music. Now, music television became a thing, which was an interesting sidebar for music, but that didn't replace audio-only listening of music. And uh, again, that's probably more than a sidebar, but, but uh, not, not the central focus of today's conversation. And now the digital streaming market for TV and film has pretty much functionally replaced video broadcast and much of theater going, not to mention VHS tapes and DVDs. I think about when Netflix was <laughs> mailing DVDs, that was like innovative. That was a big deal. And if people had only known where it was going to go and what the plan was, uh, it probably would have been interpreted differently. So, and even though the, the, the music industry has more than recovered in the digital streaming era, the functional experience of radio has not been recreated in that way. So I'm just going to come right out. Why is that, Zach? What's your feeling about why we haven't gotten there with audio the way we have with video? So I, I think it's more around creating a sustainable business first than anything else. Mm. I, I think it's taken a long time for companies to figure out how to actually generate revenues, let alone profits, when it comes to delivering music in the IP side of things, right? Right. Like broadcast radio has kind of figured a bunch of stuff out. Um, and broadcast radio actually continues to do surprisingly well. Right? People, lots of people actually listen to it. It generates a lot of revenue, and it actually generates a lot of profits. Uh, for some reason, it just hasn't really died off the way I think a lot of people expected it to. But when it comes to delivering things digitally, the rules of the road totally changed. 
It took a long time for the record labels and others to figure out how to license in a way that allowed them to make money, but also allowed other companies to, to grow and thrive. And it's taken a long time for consumers to ultimately move from listening to music the way that they wanted to, which was on products that they bought in a store, to the way that they really exist today, which is that they're available on demand as a stream or they're kind of delivered to you dynamically based on algorithms that exist on the back end. That took a long time. And so what you had was all these companies that were just kind of fighting out, like, how do I stay alive long enough to, to be successful? How do I actually grow my user base? Because unfortunately, it was never a build it and they will come type of model. And, and what they didn't think about, what they almost couldn't think about, was how to recreate the, these really innovative listening experiences that had been going on for years in the car, but doing it in a way that kind of that made more sense delivering it through digital means. And so I think, I think we're kind of at the inflection point now. I think, I hope that we're at that inflection point where now businesses actually are starting to figure out how to make money. I mean, Spotify is actually doing well, right? Apple and Amazon are certainly not complaining about their growth. Pandora has been acquired by SiriusXM, and it looks like, you know, that's a pretty meaningful platform for leanback listening. And others are emerging to kind of fill the niches that consumers seem to be demanding. And so now it's no longer about figuring out the business model. Now it's about figuring out the entertainment value or the versions of, of entertainment that people are going to be delivering and listening to. And that's going to be really exciting if that's really what starts happening now. That's, that's a really, really interesting point um, about the, the business model. It just took so long. And there, I mean, you know, in music, there's so many players. You've got, you know, you've got the publishing side, you've got the recording side, and then you've got the streaming services, and you've got the artists, and you've got the labels. And you, there's just so many dynamics, so many party, parties. So that's a really interesting um, and very clear explanation of, of what led to it. I mean, one thing that is not mentioned in that, in that particular analysis is the fact that radio doesn't pay for music the way that streaming services pay for music. Yeah, I, and and I I go back and forth as to whether or not that's a good thing. Um, I, I, honestly, like I, I sometimes I can really believe that no 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 radio shouldn't pay, and the reason why is that there should be more incentive for radio to play as much music as possible, because the more of that music that's out there, the more those artists get known the more opportunity that artist has to sell their music digitally or to go on tour or any of these other things. Um, and it, it works, right? It's really effective. A any startup artist would kill to have access to radio play and radio continues to be the dominant source, terrestrial broadcast radio continues to be the dominant source of new music for consumers. It's like, I read some report, it's like 89% of new music awareness is still actually driven by broadcast radio. But on the other hand, it's harder and harder for artists to make money today, right? The, the, the hard product that they used to sell like CDs have been kind of, have been broken apart into these digital files, abstracted from their original source. And, and it's just, you know, it's hard to make money on a micro penny basis. And so that's when I kind of swing the other way where I'm like, you know, anywhere that an artist can actually get paid is a really good thing because it keeps the, the incentives alive for artists to continue to create new and awesome music. Um, so I, I have no particular, I have no ability to put my foot down on any one of those things, but it is true that, that, that broadcast radio has not traditionally in any way paid artists and that digital opens up an opportunity for artists to get paid for something that's been going on for many, many years that they've not been compensated for.
Yeah, it's uh, it's a little tricky. It's not apples and apples in a sense because radio as a medium came to the fore at a moment when radio was a marketing platform for selling a physical product and streaming came to the fore once that physical product was clearly on the on the the demise as an economic incentive for making and putting out music and so streaming simultaneously does what radio did and what cds did and so right right, <laughs> uh, right. i think yeah i think that's right yeah so it's a little tricky podcasts have been around for quite a while um but they've kind of had a cult following now all of a sudden it seems like they're exploding what do you attribute that to so without having seen any real recent reports i don't know what the listening numbers are for podcasts now versus where they were just a few years ago i think they've been pretty popular for a long time and that i don't actually think the growth has been explosive i think it's been pretty steady but it's there's a lot more buzz around podcasts and i i think that it's partly because the music services have realized that there's nothing that's differentiating themselves from each other and that they need original content programming in order to achieve some sort of competitive advantage over others. And so there's this mad rush around podcasts to gain rights, um, to buy content and to create new content, right? iHeart, Spotify, Pandora as well. Everybody's like rushing in to the wild west of podcasts. And along with that rush comes a lot of heat and excitement and energy and investment and new content. And so I think it's just a factor of the reality, which is that music by itself is not enough for any one of these services to really exist over the long run. And by the way, that's modeling broadcast radio in some respects. Broadcast radio is not just music. Broadcast radio is talk and it's interesting programming um, and it's sports and it's news, um, right? It's been around forever. Podcasts kind of are like radio was back in the 1950s, programs, shows before television really took off. So I, I think my, my feeling is, is that it's really the heat around it that's making it feel very exciting, but actually podcasts have been, have been super successful for a long time, or at least they've been listened to a lot. I don't know if the monetization has really been there yet, but they've been a really driving force for content awareness for some time. I prefer one, I'm really excited by the heat that's around it because I think it just, it goes to what we do in our story, which is really all about how music by itself is not anything competitively interesting. It's just music. How dare you say that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm obviously, I'm bi I'll say I am very biased to believe that for, yeah. for a very, you know, a specific reason, but, but, but it is true. And I think it's really interesting what's starting to happen with podcasts is that in addition to being these listening experiences that consumers can have, they're also starting to be broken up right into these little atomic elements and peppered throughout music listening experiences, which creates something really different. And I think it's really cool. You know, what, what Spotify has been doing kind of experimentally is really awesome, I think. And I think it hints at where things are starting to go, generally speaking, in the digital music landscape. You know, it's funny when we, when we think about audio as opposed to music, it harkens to a moment when SoundCloud was positioning itself as the YouTube of audio. I don't know if they actually printed that, but I heard people saying it. Um, and and yeah. I think partly why they were saying it was because people were sort of like, what is this janky audio service? You know, like, why do we need this crowdsourced DIY upload your audio when we've already got YouTube? And my first reaction was, hmm, 
who creates audio? Don't they mean music? But then when I saw journalists, BBC, PRI, starting to create or amplify content on SoundCloud, I decided they were they might actually be on the cutting edge of something. But I'm curious, do you have a thought about why that vision never came to fruition? I, I do, actually, yeah. I've thought about this a bunch because I, I think they were fantastic. Um, I think they did an amazing job of creating something that allowed audio to be not only consumed, but more important for creators was distributed in the broadest way that had existed at the time, which was really great for both musicians and like you're saying, for journalists and others. And they, they, they created the right tools and they got it out into the ecosystem and it grew really, really, really fast. The challenges from what I've read, I don't know, I don't really have any firsthand account of this, but from what it seems from the stories that I've been told by people who have worked there or from what I've read um, and kind of heard anecdotally, it's the, the founders took their feet off the gas pedal. They kind of, they, they really enjoyed the success that they were having and didn't realize that success is something that you have to fight for every day, 24 hours a day, or else it's going to leave you behind. They didn't use the, um, the strategy of YouTube. They kind of were the YouTube of audio, but they didn't actually follow the same model. And I think if they had, they would have been enormously successful. And I think the model that they could have created is two things that they didn't do. The first is they just should have implemented advertising inside the audio streams. It was there to be had, and they just didn't grab it. I, I don't know if they were scared. They thought maybe it would, it would stop people from listening. But I think as we've all learned from YouTube, that just isn't the case. People are willing to withstand interesting advertising, right? YouTube innovated the four-second skippable ad, as an example. They could have done something similarly interesting and innovative. So that, that's the first piece of it that was kind of disappointing. The second was, is that instead of creating a really interesting deal with the record labels, so they, they, they had all this music that was being put up on there that they didn't have the rights to. So they were going to have to negotiate some sort of deals. But instead of doing something that was innovative the way that YouTube did with Vivo, where they kind of partnered with the record labels to allow the music to continue to grow and thrive and to make sure that the record labels were properly compensated, instead of that... They just went and struck a standard deal with the record labels like any digital music service would. And in doing so, it forced them to have to kind of create the, the standard $9.99 a month subscription model that nobody knew SoundCloud for. That's not what their brand was or is. And it really didn't, it, it, there was nothing different, nothing innovative about it. And it did exactly as well as I think you would have expected it to, which is not very well at all. And so they kind of lost focus of the core opportunity that they had and just kind of time passes by and things change. Consumer behaviors change, new entrants come into the market, there's more competitive differentiation, there's more innovation, and they just weren't there to take advantage of it. And I think ultimately that's what really kind of stopped their stopped their march. And it is it actually kind of bums me out because for independent artists, they were they were awesome. They were fantastic. They did a great job of creating an ecosystem that smaller artists could use to get their content out. Um, and I think we're doing a very effective job. The artists were doing a very, very effective job of using it, and they just kind of stopped. And I, that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's really interesting insight, though. I, I've never heard somebody say that that it, it was about they they just didn't keep pushing the way they could have or should have. Um, and I mean, it did seem like they were onto something. And I think some other platforms and models have tried to adopt some of that direct upload distribution. I mean, Spotify made an attempt at direct distribution. 
Um, and then on the podcasting front, just recently bought Anchor, which is kind of in that model as well. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe some of those things will show up again, or maybe SoundCloud will find footing in a, in a new era too. You know what? They just got, if I'm not mistaken, they, they just closed on a $90 million round. Yes, with SiriusXM Pandora. That's right. And, and that, that does two things, that, it hints at two things. One is that they have a chance now to write the ship. Um, and if I were in their shoes, if if they hired me to to sit in a room with them and give them the you know corporate strategy spiel for a day, I would tell them that they have to do the two things that I just talked about. A is they have to well first they have to kind of reinvigorate their product and they have to create a little bit more of an innovative offering than what they have. But that's actually not that difficult given what they have to work from. But the main things that I would do is I would I would introduce advertising in a really novel way. I wouldn't just throw audio ads in there. I'd try and create the innovative audio ad of the future that works within the SoundCloud experience. And the second thing I would do is I would go back to the record labels and I would renegotiate to try and find an interesting way of giving consumers the ability to utilize label-owned content, but in a way that is that is really germane to the SoundCloud brand and not just throwing another $10 a month service up there that nobody else needs. And I think they have a huge opportunity to do that. But the other thing that it hints at is that SiriusXM is in an unbelievable position. And I think when you look at Liberty Media, who I think is the primary shareholder of SiriusXM's stock at this point, you can kind of see that they are very slowly and very strategically building the audio delivery company of the future, right? They they own SiriusXM, they now own Pandora um, as a part of the Pandora acquisition. They also, um, they also own the largest audio advertising company in the world that Pandora had acquired a year or two earlier. They have a stake in uh, iHeartMedia, and I, I understand that it looks like they've tried to make larger acquisition in the future. They've now put you know, almost $100 million into SoundCloud. This is really interesting, and, um, and I'm not sure what their, their broad strategy is or how they're going to thread all these things together, but you can tell that the Liberty Media folks kind of see where things are going that they're 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 staking a claim in a very kind of slow and progressive way, and that they have the potential to become the dominant digital music delivery service in the future if they continue to go the way that they're going. So I think that that's kind of an interesting byproduct of the investment as it hints at where Liberty wants to take things. I thought the same thing. I mean, just when you look at Sirius, then buying Pandora, then doing this strategic big investment in SoundCloud, the stuff you're talking about with iHeartRadio, which itself has been working on delivering content via streaming for years now, uh, although I don't know that they found footing in the same way as some of the other streaming, although I'm sure there's tons of traditional radio listeners who are moving over to our iHeartRadio streaming services. It just might not be the hardcore music folks that adopted Spotify. Um those things are super interesting. And, you know, Pandora's, in addition to that, Pandora's created the artist audio messaging, uh, which brings in a, an element of non-musical content. Spotify made those investments in podcast creation and original content. But with all of that, something's not quite there with streaming as a replacement for radio. I mean, even Sirius XM, satellite radio is different than broadcast radio, but it's in your car typically, and it feels like broadcast radio in a sense. The programming's a lot closer to broadcast radio. But what do you think is missing for streaming or these digital delivery systems to replace radio, to replace the, the statistics that you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast that are still so dominant for music discovery? Well... 
I think part of what continues to drive radio is just the fact that it's ubiquitously free, right? It's in your car almost no matter what. I I do think that as 5G, you know, if you kind of cut through all the hype of 5G, as 5G starts to really get out into the ecosystem and, and propagate into vehicles, I think that has the potential to really change because, the, the, again, everything then will be so ubiquitously available and effectively free that it has the potential, I think, to really damage terrestrial as a technology. But terrestrial as an experience is something altogether different. And I think, again, that it seems like the digital music services are starting to realize that there are characteristics of broadcast radio that shouldn't be thrown away, right? I think it's there's been an us and them feeling at the digital services for a long time that radio is a dinosaur. There's nothing that they do that's interesting. They just annoy the shit out of consumers and we want to get away from all that. But that was a real overreaction. And that's also a lack of understanding of, of broadcast radio and consumers. And I think the data doesn't lie. I mean, there are more people by far listening to iHeart this week than there are listening to Spotify. That's a remarkable statistic, right? iHeart's just a bunch of old terrestrial stations, but there's a bunch of stuff that they do that digital hasn't yet figured out how to do. And, um, and I think those things are starting to make their way into digital broadcasting. So as an example, one is local. You can't underestimate the feeling of connecting to a local experience. And for a lot of people, at least in the States, that's, a, that's very important, right? Local weather, local news, local information. That's the first thing. The second is brand. When you listen to a Spotify stream and you close your eyes, I... I, how do you tell the difference between who you're listening to, how you're listening to Spotify or how you're listening to Apple Music? All you're doing is listening to the artist, right? If you're listening to a track from Taylor Swift, you're listening to Taylor Swift. The experience that you're having is now completely abstracted from its source of origination, which is actually the music service that you pay every month. And as more and more people start listening through smart speakers or through their car or while they're doing something else and they're not sitting there looking at a screen, there's no logo or no visual brand association with what it is that you're experiencing. It's just a music stream. Broadcast radio has done a really effective job of like branding that moment, creating relationships with their listeners by having like a station ID, right? Some sonic logo that, that you can identify with and personalities that help the whole experience to actually come to life. The, the professional disc jockeys are actually really important to the experience. It's something that, that differentiates that experience from anything else that may have the same music streams. That's been missing. And that is starting to change. Digital music services are recognizing that. So Pandora last year came out with a Sonic logo. They, they don't use it very widely, but they made a big, uh, a big splash about having actually invested in it as though that was something that was truly innovative. And funnily enough, in the digital space, it, it was. But what, what radio station hasn't had a jingle for the past 60 years? It's, it's not innovative. It's ridiculous to not have one. Um, and so that, that's, the, that's the kind of missing link there, right? Those are the attributes of radio that are actually pretty good and have connected with listeners for, for decades and keep listeners coming back to a particular station over and over again, even if that station has the same music as another station in the same town. And that's what's going to have to happen inside of digital music services for them to be able to differentiate from each other and to start to deliver these, these more kind of fully featured lean back experiences that consumers are voting with their time, showing us that they actually, that actually matters, right? Because if it didn't matter, iHeart wouldn't actually have more listeners than Spotify, but it does. 
I was listening to an exercise playlist the other day from a DJ, and it was a mix. It wasn't even a playlist. I think it was just a, a seamless mix. And every song or so, you know, there would be an audio imprint on it. DJ blah blah blah, you know, in the thing, and he's actually uploaded that to to Spotify, where he has his own. Because especially with a DJ mix, you know, he's got to insert his his identity, his his brand in there. So that's that's a really really good point um, about that. The I'm just going to add this one thing. So so Peloton is a customer of ours, but and 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 as a part of that, we've gotten to learn a lot about what drives Peloton's brand loyalty. Um, Peloton's I don't know if you've ever taken a Peloton ride. Uh, but it's they look at every detail of the experience with more of a microscope than almost any other company I've ever worked with in my life, right? I mean, from the way that the pedals feel to the way that the, you know, the position of your body on the bike. But of course, the most important thing is what are the experiences that you're having through their live classes? They are a music service, right? They, they are a music service with a bike attached. But the thing that makes their music service really interesting isn't necessarily the music. It's the instructors. And if you talk to anybody that's a huge Peloton fan, they'll actually tell you that the relationship that they feel that they have with the instructors is what keeps them coming back for more and allows them to become more fit as a byproduct of that, right? Their fitness goals are in many cases usurped by the feelings that they have on the bike. It's not even about fitness anymore. It's about the social relationship they feel like they have with the instructors. Those instructors are just a modern version of a DJ. They're just taking you through a different experience with their voice. That that relationship with a personality is absolutely critical to building a brand relationship with music services, and none of them have it. It's a surprising gap, we think, that exists in the marketplace. Wow, that's, that's super interesting. Reminds me of a book called The Experience Economy, which starts off talking about, first you have a product, uh, uh, a coffee bean, and that eventually becomes a commodity. So it's very hard to differentiate between one coffee bean and another. So then you have uh, a coffee shop that will pour your coffee for you, make and pour your coffee for you. So now that's, that's, that's a little bit up the scale on the experience economy. And then from there you go to, um, well, I guess commodity, then there's the stuff you bring home and you can grind. And then there's the, the coffee shop. And then there's the Starbucks type experience, which Starbucks is not the only one that does it, but they kind of put it on the map of, no, it's not just that we're pouring your coffee, that we're making and pouring your coffee. It's that there's music that goes with it. There's purple furniture that goes with it. There's a smell. And you have to speak your own special language to even order the drink. And then you have an experience. There's like all this other stuff that goes with it. Yes, there is. All right. So there's this guy, Kevin Roberts. He ran Saatchi and Saatchi globally for a bunch of years, right? Great ad agency, really amazing stuff. He has a concept called Love Marks. And Love Marks was kind of an analysis of how certain brands drive what he calls loyalty beyond reason, right? Like why does, why, why do people tattoo a Harley Davidson logo on their arm? That's a bit ridiculous, right? Um, you know, people don't, don't tattoo Yamaha logos on their arm, but Yamaha makes amazing motorcycles. So what is it that drives that? Or like what we've learned in the past, like Johnson and Johnson, like why are there people who, when they have a baby, will only use Johnson's baby shampoo or Johnson's uh, diapers from Pampers? And it's multi-generational. What drives that brand loyalty over anybody else? And what we actually found is that scientifically speaking, the companies that understand how to manage that, which includes the Starbucks example you just gave, is two factors. The first is that you have to kind of, you have, your values have to stand out, right? You have to stand for something. And the second is there has to be major differentiation. 
you have to be different and you have to stand for something. So just think about that for a minute, right? Like Harley Davidson, they stand for, you know, whatever it is, that freedom, that big American freedom or whatever their brand attributes are. Um, and they do no matter what they don't make, they can make their bikes 40% lighter tomorrow by building the motors out of aluminum. Um, but that's not the Harley brand. So they stick to it. They stay different. And it's their differentiation that allows them to stand out and to drive that loyalty beyond reason. In the digital music space today, I'd love you to tell me of any of the services that are out there, what do any of them stand for and what the hell makes any of them different? And until we can answer that question, you're not going to actually see the kind of competitive advantage that a Starbucks has over other coffee companies. Um, they, they are... I don't want to say that these brands are weak because they have a lot of they have a lot of growth behind them, but you know that there it, it wouldn't take much to topple um, one of these services and become the biggest digital music service if somebody was able to figure out how to create that kind of brand loyalty. Awesome! Wow, this has been super interesting. You know what? Let's rewind and talk about your company, Super Hi-Fi. We gave I gave a very brief overview, but who is this guy who's dropping all these knowledge bombs? Tell us what you do. Um, <laughs> all right. So, well, actually, it's really, I'm glad you're asking the very specific questions that you're asking, because actually, this is right in the wheelhouse of what we were thinking about all the time and why we actually started the company in the first place. So I maybe just to give you just a couple of quick minutes of background, so you have some understanding of why I have the views that I have. Um, so we, and when I say we, it's really my business partner and I have been doing digital music for a very long time. Um, we've worked together for, for over 20 years, uh, side by side. We actually met at a short-lived um, internet record label venture that was started by Jimmy Iovine called farmclub.com. And we were the first two employees there and we, we, uh, we really liked it, but we wanted to do something in the streaming music space, which was really just starting to emerge at the time. And uh, we started in, in, in that goal, we started a division of Virgin for Richard Branson called Virgin Digital, which was streaming music and digital music globally for Virgin. And we did that for about seven and a half years. Um, and that was really awesome. And, and, uh, and the Virgin experience was amazing. And we got to build a lot of really kind of early, very popular digital music services, which gave us a, an understanding of, of the space. And when the Virgin megastores were getting sold about 12 or 13 years ago, we kind of handed Branson back his keys and set up a digital agency to do for other companies what we had been doing for him for that period of time. And so we ended up building out a lot of digital music services. We built CBS Radio's consumer uh, music streaming platform, which actually, strangely, I think still operates after 12 years. They're still using it. Um, we built AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast back when those were brands that really mattered. Um, I think one of the products that we were most proud of is uh, when Cricket Wireless hired our agency to design, develop, and operate something called Move Music, which was the first subscription music streaming service baked into a handset and a rate plan and focused on low-income consumers, which was great. We had about 3.5 million paying subscribers on that by the time Cricket sold to AT&T. So we've just done this a lot. We, we're really passionate about digital music. But the thing that's frustrated us for the entirety of the time are the same things that you've just been asking about for this podcast. Like we were fighting to just get the rights to stream music for our customers or for ourselves when we were at Virgin, instead of having the time to sit back and, and ask ourselves how we could spend that same time thinking of innovative new ways to deliver content to consumers. And we knew, we always felt very strongly that the broadcast radio world was the, was the model for it. Um, 
And we did experiment with that with each of our customers, with each of our products, we would experiment with different things. Sometimes we'd have voices, voice liners that were in there to test out whether or not that worked. And it always did. Sometimes we'd have upsell things. We'd have artist interviews. We'd have all kinds of interesting things we'd try and intersect with the music. And every time we did it, consumers actually reacted better, not worse, They right? Some customers, I guess, will say, I just don't want to hear anything but the music. But a lot of them just want to lean back and listen to an experience. And every time we tried to do it, it worked really effectively. The challenge is, is that today, when you listen to the services, none of them have that. And in addition, to the extent that some are starting to experiment with, with pieces like that, artist interviews or advertising or sonic logos in the case of Pandora or podcasts in the case of Spotify, they don't sound good, right? It's a song, it's a giant gap of silence, then it's a, another song, then another giant gap of silence, and then maybe, maybe a podcast snippet that's at like 30% lower volume. That is not a good experience. And that's what we were hearing out in the marketplace. And we wanted to do something about it. And so with all the experience that we've had, both in engineering, very sophisticated back-end services for big clients that we had, as well as all the specific experience that we had building digital music products for you know, some of the largest brands that have, have existed in the space, we kind of put that together and started to invest in some really, really advanced artificial intelligence that could help those companies to do the two things that we knew were missing. One was put the, put the awesome content inside the streams, right? Select the right content, right? Prepare and select the right content. And then the second thing is make it sound good. So it sounds like somebody actually cares about the experience with songs that are perfectly transitioned and interstitials that have the right volume level and advertisements that stitch the right way between songs and liners and personalities that bring it all to life. And that's what we've been building for the past few years is, su is super hi-fi. That's, that's what it really is. It's just artificial intelligence that's smart enough to know how to make those content selection and presentation decisions that when our customers, the digital music services, integrate it, it up-levels the listening experience in a significant way. And that, that's what we're doing. Awesome. How's, how's traction? Um, it is fantastic. So... Here, I'll give you a very kind of quick anecdotal story about it. So when we first launched, um, we went around, we talked to a lot of potential customers. And the one that actually was really most interested was iHeart. And uh, that was really daunting for us because iHeart's the biggest radio company in the world. And they actually have a massive streaming platform. And they wanted to integrate us directly into their digital music experience um, service, which is right, all the apps that they have. And we were like, okay, this is like, we're off to the races. Let's see what, what happens. But before they integrated it, they wanted to do a test. So they integrated our technology into their Android stack. And they, uh, they chose randomly 400,000 listeners in the States. And they created these two cohorts, randomly flipped back and forth, which was half of them who had our technology turned on so that all the music would just stitch together elegantly, artfully, as though somebody were actually behind a mixing console at a radio station making things sound pro and, and half that didn't have it on. So it was just a song and a gap and a song and a gap and no volume leveling and none of that stuff. And um, we were kind of terrified, I think is the right word. We're like, what if it doesn't work? What if people listen for less, right? I mean, we don't, we didn't really know. We just had this idea that it would, increase the value of the experience for consumers. Um, so we did the test and the test ran for a few months. And at the end of it, the result was that for people that had our technology on where the songs were just artfully transitioning, no personalities or any of that yet, just the most basic aspects of what we do, that group listened for almost 10% more than the other group did. 
no matter how you shifted it, it was almost a 10% increase in time spent listening. And what that did is it really started us down the path of being able to to sell our product to other people and to describe to them why there's a lot of value in it and to excite them about what they could be doing with it. Because it's the first kind of direct quantitative example of how taking broadcast radio techniques and layering them into really advanced technology for digital music delivery can have a significant impact on the quality of the experience and the amount of time that people are willing to listen. And by the way, 10% more listening means 10% more engagement, means 10% more brand loyalty. And in many cases for advertising supported services, it's 10% more revenue. So that's a pretty direct impact right there. And that, that was kind of the firing gun for us, so to speak. And so just to, to kind of circle back around and answer your question more directly. So we do power iHeart today, which is great. We power Peloton for, for all of their live music rides, which is fantastic. We help manage the transition experience and energy of the classes themselves so they don't have to just use crossfades or have giant gaps of silence when people are trying to work out and keep a you know keep a 30-minute workout going in the right way. Um, we have partnerships with Napster, um, who surprisingly has one of the largest B2B digital music delivery services in the world, uh, Target Spot for advertising. We have a partnership with the Associated Press for news ingestion and delivery, a really great strategic partnership with uh, Universal Music Group and a number of partnerships that we haven't announced yet. Uh, and as of today, we're, we're delivering somewhere close to 350 million music transitions a month, and that's growing every single month pretty rapidly. So we're getting to we're getting to a point where uh, where you know we're really starting to infuse the ecosystem with our vision for how digital music experiences can, when using some of the radio techniques, sound a lot better and drive a lot more listening. Awesome. So that makes a lot of sense of, of why you kind of have all these perspectives on all the stuff we've been talking about and, uh, and, and ideas about how that, those things could be improved, you know, where we, we see this, this merging of different audio forms. Um, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll caveat all my other, um, all my other answers earlier with the, the description of, of my views as being somewhat biased, right? I mean, my, I started a business specifically because we saw that gap and we wanted to fill it. But just because I'm biased doesn't mean I'm wrong. There, there is no doubt that, that consumers connect to the things inside of radio that are, that are unique and distinctive, right? Great personalities, great sonic presentation, good, good audio branding. All those things still matter. Whether they come in the form of a podcast snippet or news segment or an artist interview, or whatever it is that you can think of inside of a lean back listening experience that brings it to life in a way that really connects with a consumer, those things do matter. Because if they didn't, terrestrial radio would be out of business, and they're actually not. It's what keeps them alive with a technology that's totally antiquated. So we know in our gut, we know strongly that as these things start making their way into digital music experiences, where it's not just song after song after song, but it's a tapestry of a listening experience, that's just going to improve the relationship that consumers have with their service of choice. And we are starting to see that as we grow and we get new customers and we integrate our technology and our vision into other people's services, the experiences that their consumers are starting to have are better. And so for us, like I said earlier, yes, we're biased, but we're really, I don't believe that we're wrong. This is, this is an amazing time for digital music. And there is a tremendous amount that's changing and evolving 
and innovating around it to bring better experiences to consumers over time. Awesome. You know, this has been a blast, Zach. Uh, your passion just shines through, and I'm sure it's going to help you see a lot more success because it's just absolutely contagious, and uh, I'm partial to that kind of enthusiasm. Anyway, uh, <laughs> before we wrap up, you know, you're based in L.A. where we hold the Music Tectonics Conference, which is where we met. I'm curious if you could just take just a quick minute and tell us what's the pulse check on Music Tech in L.A. these days? It's... I. It's it's an interesting question. I think it's the same pulse check as technology in general in LA. What you've seen over the past five or six years is that LA has really grown into a credible place for technology to emerge and thrive from. You know, certainly things like Snapchat really helped, but you can look at the expansion of Google and Facebook and Amazon as well. And and Los Angeles is becoming an epicenter of the the intersection of media and technology in a way that we always kind of thought it would, but it seems like it took 20 extra years to get there. And so I think music technology is exactly the same thing. Just quick, quick backstories. I did a bunch of work for Mayor Villaraigosa about, uh, about seven years ago or so. Um, my team and I, and about 25 other entrepreneurs throughout Los Angeles kind of ran at what we call the council on innovation and industry for the city of Los Angeles. And what that really was, was an opportunity for us to do a bunch of research on why Los Angeles was not um, viewed as a credible tech center and to create for the city a whole bunch of initiatives that they could undertake to, to, to change that. You know, what we learned is that actually it's the fact that Los Angeles is so media centric in its, in its history that stopped it from being something that anybody would consider to be credible. So when you get somebody writing an article about Los Angeles, they just didn't want to, they didn't want to take it seriously that there was anything interesting that was happening in LA from a tech standpoint, because the media side of things seems so fluffy. But now that things like Netflix have really proven that the model of streaming video works, that the over-the-top model is growing so substantially, it's really fundamentally changed. It's the thing that kind of worked against Los Angeles for a while, is now working for it, that the ability to understand media the way that Los Angeles does innately in its bones as a city is actually what gives it a real advantage when it comes to you know, running the technology that ultimately creates those experiences for consumers. So as a tech center, Los Angeles is starting to gain a lot of attention. And I think as a music tech center, it just goes right along with it, right? Music is, is media. Um, you know, all the record labels have their largest operational centers in Los Angeles. And you know, technology is starting to come out of places like Snapchat or, you know, engineers that were in Los Angeles to work for Google or Facebook that are now off on their own raising capital and building new and cool things. And so this is a very long-winded answer to a very short question, I realize. But hey, it's it's great insights. <laughs> I'm I'm really into Los Angeles as I mean, I love the the place as a city. We we have never thought of relocating, even though our access to engineering would be so much better and our access to capital would have been a lot better too if we were out there raising money. But we just believe in Los Angeles. And I think as media has become digitized, it's becoming more and more important as, as a center for both media and technology. And I think we're riding some of that wave. Awesome. No, I appreciate the insights. And um, th this has been just a blast all around. Great to get your insights on the, the bigger picture of audio streaming, radio, and where that's going and innovations that are coming down the pike and what you're up to with Super Hi-Fi. Real quick, we got to wrap up, but how can Music Tectonics listeners catch up with you? Are there industry events you're coming to in the next quarter or two? Where should they find you on social media, et cetera? So social media, we are 
only LinkedIn. It's just a very kind of, I love LinkedIn. It's very simple and very targeted for us. Um, and then with respect to events, so we're going to be at the music biz conference in Nashville in a pretty meaningful way in, uh, in early May, which is going to be great. Um, of course we'll be at music tectonics in October in Los Angeles when you're, when you're doing that event, we're really looking forward to it was fantastic last time, by the way, we had, we had an amazing time and, uh, and yeah, I mean, people, people literally email us from our website and, and I, I look at all those and respond to many of them. So it's like, if somebody has a specific question or thought or idea, I'm around, I love, you know, I eat, breathe and sleep this stuff and, and love the opportunity to talk about it. And, and to that, I'll just say, I, I very much, I had a blast on, on this discussion too. And I think the questions that you asked were like super insightful and um, really enjoyable to talk about and think about. I'm just, I'm appreciative of that, man. Oh, thanks, man. It's been, it's been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to catching you up, uh, catching up with you at, in Nashville at Music Biz. We'll, we'll see. I will, we'll be in LA before then. We're going to probably announce a, uh, an LA Music Tectonics meetup here in April soon. So we'll keep our listeners posted. Thanks for joining me, Zach. We'll see you soon. Thanks, man. And thank you for listening to Music Tectonics. Please do hit subscribe on whatever uh, podcasting, listening app that you like to cast your pods on or pod your casts. And uh, keep listening. Go to musictectonics.com to find out about the conference. Tickets are now on sale and we're actually selling them. It's awesome. People are excited this year. We're going to have great energy. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.